It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. We talked about Neil Young on Media Buzz yesterday. I played a little Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming to make the point that Young has always been political. And look, as I've said, I love Neil Young's music. I love Crosby's music and Nash's music and Stills's music. What I don't love was that Neil Young tried to shake down Spotify. My feeling is he doesn't like what Joe Rogan says about ivermectin, about COVID-19, about vaccines. You know, blast him. Write a song about it. But don't demand that he'd been kicked off the platform because that reeks of censorship. Well, there's been some uh, fairly dramatic developments on this starting last night where Joe Rogan put up about a 10-minute Instagram video and he apologized. So I have to say, uh, Neil Young's instincts in terms of what he thought he could do to change the national conversation even though I may disagree with it because it seems to me it leads us down a road where anybody can now say, well, I'm not going to appear on such, such a platform unless you fire this person. But his instincts were pretty good because, look, other musicians were starting to jump on the young bandwagon. His fellow Canadian, Joni Mitchell, uh, Nils Lofgren of the Springsteen Band and others. And then my favorite, absolute favorite, Harry and Meghan put out a statement. Harry and Meghan are being paid $30 million dollars by Spotify and have produced, wait, let me do the math here, zero, zero podcasts so far. Say, so, you know, we are deeply concerned about this and blah, blah, blah. But here's Rogan, you know, guy who's making $100 million, most popular podcaster in the known universe. And he's backing off here. He's apologizing. Here's some of what he said on Instagram, addressing Young. If I pissed you off, I'm sorry. And if you enjoy the podcast, thank you talking maybe more generally to his listeners. And he said um, he has guests on who he took issue with the notion that he is peddling misinformation. He says, my guests are highly credentialed, very intelligent, very accomplished. They have an opinion that is different from the mainstream narrative. I wanted to hear what their opinion is. Rogan goes on to say about the musicians, I'm very sorry that they feel that way, talking here about Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. Um, I most certainly don't want that. I'm a Neil Young fan. I've always been a Neil Young fan. And then, you know, this gets to the heart of Rogan's appeal, which is that, you know, he's not trying to be a Sunday morning boring host uh, who comes in with reams of research. And he says, he says in, in the video, I don't always do a lot of prep work for the show, but he says he's going to start doing more research and have all the pertinent facts at hand before I discuss them. As for the viewpoints, because he's put on a couple of pretty prominent anti-vax voices, um, one guy in particular, and this drew a lot of flack, uh, made the analogy about vaccine mandates to Nazi Germany, talked about mass hypnosis. So now Rogan is saying, um, I want to balance out these more controversial viewpoints with other people's perspectives so maybe we can find a better point of view. In fact, he went on to say that, you know, he does the booking himself. Uh, I don't always get it right. Um, And a lot of people are now having a distorted perception of what I do, says Joe Rogan. I can see that. Not everybody's on Spotify. It's a three-hour podcast. Um, Maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. So he's been stung by this to the point where he felt the need to apologize to Neil Young, uh, maybe to the public, to say he needs to do a better job. This is really interesting. I mean, what happened is that Neil Young's ultimatum struck a nerve. 
absolutely positively. Now, for Spotify's part, also last night, uh, this giant streaming company put out a statement saying it's going to add a content advisory to all podcasts that discuss the coronavirus, and that will direct listeners to a COVID-19 hub that Spotify has set up or is setting up. Um, it actually exists now. There's news from BBC, Politico, CNN, ABC. Now, it wasn't clear whether Spotify was going to uh, air the advisory during the podcast episode or just have a notation on the show page or within descriptions of the particular episode. And it published the rules that it has. And it says, you know, we don't allow anything that promotes dangerous, false, uh, or, or deceptive medical information that may cause offline harm, poses a direct threat to public health. Well, you can argue then whether or not Rogan giving a platform to some of these people um, goes in that direction or not. And by the way, you know, it was last year that Rogan made the fairly dumb statement that younger, healthy people don't need to get the vaccine. And he came back and said, look, I'm an effing moron. You know, don't listen to me. So, you know, here's the bottom line. Spotify is now having to grow up just as happened with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, where they became a giant money-making platform, mostly by getting users to share their content. It's different for Spotify. you, you got to subscribe as a business model, a business model that's threatened by all these musicians threatening to pull their music. Um, and, um, you know, so it went from just like, hey, we're the place for music, tens of millions of songs, to we want to be involved in politics and culture and get royal couple and get Joe Rogan. Well, if you do that, you have to have some form of content moderation. Otherwise, listeners say, why are you allowing hate speech? Why are you allowing anti-Semitism? Why are you allowing bullying? Why are you allowing Holocaust deniers? So Spotify now trying to draw, draw a line. So this became a genuine public relations crisis for the company, for Joe Rogan. And now he has blinked, I would say, and is saying he's going to do things differently, trying to set things straight. Hope you had a good weekend. All right, story number one. What am I going to talk about? Take a wild guess. Tom Brady and the NFL playoffs. You know, Saturday afternoon, quiet day. I figured, okay, the show is all set. I'm going to do anything. And then ESPN drops this bombshell. According to sources familiar with his thinking, Tom Brady is retiring. You know, a few people said to me, why did I even spend time on this? Because Tom Brady, if you're not a sports fan, if you're not a football fan, he's a celebrity. He's the most famous football player on the planet, uh, known globally. He's got a supermodel wife, 22 seasons. He's 44 years old. He almost came down from 24 points down in that last playoff game when he lost to the L.A. Rams on the field goal in the final seconds or minute. Um, seven Super Bowl rings. Just an incredible career. And, you know, I kind of thought he'd probably retire, but I didn't get about the story was. Why would he do it the day before, and I knew it was a leak, but leaks come from somewhere, the day before the NFC and AFC championship games? Why not wait until after the Super Bowl? For two reasons. One is, you know, it's kind of classless to detract attention from your fellow NFL athletes who are still playing. And secondly, you know, you're coming off the heat of the season, you're emotional, like maybe you want to let it sit a little while before you make a final decision. So... I'm watching every, and I put the tweets up too, ESPN, yeah, you know, my thinking is this, ESP blanking N is not going to go with a story saying that Tom Brady is retiring without having it absolutely nailed down. This is what I said on the air. 
Um, and my uh, my guess, Mike Gunzelman, was well, you know what? I I hope it's I hope Brady's not retiring. He probably is because I think ESPN jumped the gun, and I'd love to stick to see Brady stick it to ESPN. Okay, fine. But then you figure, all right, maybe Brady's not ready to announce it, and and Brady's company um, put out a tweet saying, well, "Here was the great career statistics of the great man," and then deleted it. And then came an AP story, also quoting sources, saying the Tampa Bay Buccaneers didn't know anything about this, and in fact. Brady, according to these sources, told his team he hadn't made up his mind yet. So now you got a dilemma. You know, you have the huge drudge headline, Brady retiring. Then it becomes Brady retiring, question mark. Media love question marks because, you know, you can say anything with a question mark. And, you know, it sparks this debate. So then it became media confusion. But meanwhile, everybody's going nuts over it. I happened to flip on MSNBC and they're interviewing, you know, people on the street in Tampa Bay. Oh, Tom Brady should be able to do whatever he wants. But the women were like, no, say it ain't so, Tom. No, you can't leave. So it became this huge media muddle. And Sports Illustrated had a story saying he hadn't made up his mind. And who do you believe? So my, the way I read the tea leaves here is this. Yes, he's retiring. No, he didn't want this out. Now, it's kind of like Stephen Breyer. You know, suddenly NBC's Pete Williams gets the scoop, but Breyer isn't prepared to go public. He may have made the decision. Uh, obviously, it leaked out through Supreme Court sources. President Biden himself says, I can't talk about it because it's nothing official. And then they get it together and they have the White House um, ceremony the next day and Biden honors and so forth. So this is sports. It's very different. But when it comes to, you know, the way the media treat these things, really it's pretty much the same. In other words, everyone assumed it was true based in part because ESPN has been a sports network. It's been around a very long time. But now it became confusion. Is it true? Could it be true? Could Tom Brady change his mind? Maybe he hasn't made up his mind. And then uh, one of my colleagues at Fox pointed out uh, there was a, a sports website that had the following information. And then I said, aha, so this is what it's about. There's a clause in Tom Brady's current contract, and he had an amazing year, at 44, and if the ball had bounced the other way, that that kick had uh, bounced off the uh, goalpost, uh, he might still be playing. That clause says he gets a $20 million bonus. I guess certain incentives, whether it's making it to the playoffs or certain performance marks he had to hit, but he doesn't get $15 million of it until after this coming Friday. So if you're Tom Brady, and yes, he's got lots of money, but you know nobody walks away from $15 million by prematurely announcing it because if he quits... He's not on the team. He's not on the team. He doesn't get the bonus. And I think that's what's going to end up being the story here. Um, but again, I was suspicious because a Brady's own agent put out a statement. He didn't say it wasn't true. He didn't say, I'm knocking this down. He said, oh, you know, I understand the speculation. Um, the only person who really knows the complete accuracy is Tom. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and now i got to talk to you about this crazy Kansas City game. Remember last week, and what many are calling the greatest football game of all time. Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs, um, in overtime, and became it sparked this huge debate, which is still going on about the NFL's, uh, how shall I put it, incredibly stupid overtime rule where a coin toss decide, can decide the game. One team wins the toss, it was Kansas City. Buffalo Bills had, had a fabulous game and come back and they had come back and they come back. Kansas City ties the game on a drive by Mahomes, gets out there, runs, what was it, eight plays. You know, the Buffalo defense couldn't stop him. Scores a touchdown. It's over. It's over. 
Josh Allen, the Bills never get on the field. So this time, second quarter, Kansas City's up 21-3. to And you're looking at it, it's like Kansas City always manages to pull it off. Mahomes, this game is pretty much over. You know, you go get a snack. Then, I was actually riding in the car. Get out of the car, turn the TV back on. It's 21-21. Amazingly, the Cincinnati Bengals had managed to tie it up. And it comes down to a, a kick with two seconds left, and the Bengals get back in the game. And then they lose the coin toss, the second straight week. It's just, it's just like this just doesn't happen except in the movies. Kansas City wins the coin toss, and even uh, the Bengals players were saying after that, we thought we were toast. You know, you give, you give Patrick Mahomes the ball in overtime, and all he's got to do is march down the field and score a touchdown. But what's happening was, the reason the Bengals were able to get back in the game is their defense was incredible. It was smothering um, Mahomes. Time after time after time, he had to throw the ball away. He couldn't find any receivers. He would come out of the pocket and run, get tackled for a loss. And so, first two plays, he can't connect with anybody. Third down, remember, they, they can win this if they go all the way down the field. Throws a long pass. Uh, the, the Bengals defender deflects it, goes up in the air. The other Bengals defender standing right there, gets the ball back. It's a turnover, and then Cincinnati uh, marches into the end zone. Uh, no, I mean, sets up a field goal, uh, which the guy nails it 44 yards and goes to the Super Bowl. Cincinnati Bengals going to the Super Bowl. And so in that case, the coin toss thing didn't matter. Well, if you have an incredible defense like the Bengals, and I think it's a great win for them because, you know, Kansas City always wins these things, except when it lost to Tom Brady, uh, if that was the right year, and the and the New England Patriots. So that's my football spiel. Um, you'll only have to put up with this one more time, and that's two weeks from now after the actual Super Bowl, which I've got to say, a lot of times the Super Bowl game itself, except for the commercials, is kind of boring. doesn't match up to the playoff excitement, but this has been one of the most incredible playoff seasons uh, in NFL history and rewarded with big, big ratings. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. This didn't get much media attention, but I suspect today and tonight, particularly when the primetime people come on, you'll be hearing a lot about Donald Trump's Saturday night rally in Texas. I mean, he had all the greatest hits. But the thing that he said that was really newsworthy had to do with January 6th. And it wasn't just, you know, the same old rhetoric about uh, the big lie was the election and uh, you know, expressing sympathy for the people who breached the Capitol and saying that uh, you know, the election was stolen and they're going to come back and all of that. I mean, he did all that. But then he did this. First thing he did was he, he went after the uh, state attorney general and the Manhattan district attorney for the investigations of his business in New York. And he went after the prosecutors in Georgia uh, who have convened a special grand jury to see whether or not um, President Trump, in calling the Georgia Secretary of State, can you find 11,000 votes, uh, did something that might have been construed as illegal. So he said to the crowd, of course the crowd is going crazy, uh, that we should, you should mount the biggest protest of all time if any charges are brought against me. Okay, even that seems very classic Trumpian. And then came this. He starts talking about how the January 6th rioters, more than 700 people charged with criminal offenses, 
many, some of whom are receiving really long sentences. Others are not. Uh, but, you know, it's all due process. They all get to go before judges and plead their case. So Trump says, if I run and I win, meaning in 2024, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly, he said in a town outside Houston. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. So can somebody point out to me, other than like dropping charges against everybody who's a Trump supporter, how they're being treated unfairly? The ones who've committed, you know, actual violence or assault are tending to get the longer sentences. The ones who just breached the Capitol and maybe being charged with improper entry or trespassing or whatever the actual legal term is, um, are not getting unduly stiff sentences. Some of them, you know, they've been interviewed. They've said this on social media. They thought they were there to do Trump's bidding. Now, I don't have to remind anybody that Trump pardoned a number of close associates of his before leaving office. That would include Steve Bannon. That would include Michael Flynn. That would include Roger Stone, or, you know, in some cases, commuted the sentence of. Um, and, you know, there was a bit of an uproar but by that point, especially the ones that he did in the last couple of weeks. You know, there was such an uproar in the country about the, the, the horrible day, the attack on democracy. And I'm sorry, you can debate whether to call it insurrection or not. It was an attack on democracy. It was an attempt to stop Congress from certifying the Electoral College results so that Joe Biden would not have taken the final step he needed to become president. Now, what's happening in terms of the reaction to this? Okay, so it turns out that some Republicans, as well as Democrats, are actually criticizing Trump's remark about pardons. Like, I don't really get it because I mean, look, I get it on this level. Donald Trump always makes everything about him. And I don't say that as an anti-Trumper. I say that as a guy who's known him for 35 years. He did it when he would fight with Ed Koch and Leona Helmsley and all these other figures in New York. And he did it as a candidate, and he did it as president, and he did it with the, quote, fake news media. And he wants uh, all the Republicans running in primaries now to support his theory of a rigged election. Some of them are ducking it, some of them are outright supporting it, others just wish the whole thing would go away. So here we have Senator Susan Collins, who actually voted to convict Trump in the second impeachment trial. She said on ABC, she did not think the former president should have made those comments, we should let the judicial process proceed. Lindsey Graham, perhaps Trump's closest confidant in Congress. The guy who still play, plays golf with him all the time. The guy is always saying, you know, the Republican Party needs Donald Trump. He said on Face the Nation, uh, the remarks were inappropriate. I don't want to reinforce that defiling the Capitol is okay. I don't want to do anything that would make this more likely in the future. Well, good for Lindsay. Uh, but when you make comments like that about potential pardons, and your closest defender in the Senate says inappropriate and, and defiling the Capitol, it's a little bit of a suggestion that perhaps maybe you've gone too far. And that leads me very nicely into story number three. Dan Balls, longtime uh, political reporter and columnist for the Washington Post, kind of the dean of the D.C. press corps, always fair-minded, has a column about Trump and his standing in the GOP. And it starts out by saying, look, nobody should end, end, underestimate Trump. He has the passion and allegiance of a substantial part of the GOP base. But, says Balls, there are signs that since January 6th, his support within the party may not be as robust as it once was. 
Okay. And uh, Bowles is very quickly to say, look, um, majorities of Republicans in polls, poll after poll after poll, believe Trump's claims, the unproven widespread fraud claims, hasn't been proven in a single uh, court of law, hasn't been proven by his own Justice Department investigation under Bill Barr. Six in 10 Republicans, according to latest Post survey, say there is solid evidence that was widespread fraud in 2020. Nearly six in 10 say Biden's election was, le was legit, not legitimate. So if you have that kind of loyalty, you're a major force in the party. And um, look, I, Donald Trump runs, I, I say again, who's going to beat him? But, and even Ball says, look, it's less clear than, it's less clear now that there's any Republican who could deny him the nomination. But, and here comes the contrary information. Uh, another poll, uh, this one uh, by NBC. On the eve of the 2020 election, 54% of Republicans and independents who lean Republican said they considered themselves more a supporter of Trump than of the Republican Party. January 2021, 46% say more a supporter of Trump, 46% more with the GOP. The latest poll says 56% of Republicans say they are more supporters of the party. 36% say they are more supporters of Trump. So that's a big swing. It also reflects him being out of the spotlight, um, being out of office, and, you know, to some extent, the political world moving on. But obviously, the Republicans can't move on until the Donald Trump question is settled. Some other numbers uh, from polls that Balls points out. Since the final month of the campaign, Trump has lost 26 points among white Republicans without college degrees. He's lost 21 points among self-identified conservative Republicans. He's lost 18 points among Republican men, 17 points among Republican women. He's lost 23 points among Republicans age 65 and older, 19 points among white evangelical Republicans. Um, it goes on to say that uh, there's, a mar I mean, there's a lot of polls here, so forgive me for throwing out this blizzard of statistics. But this is interesting. Marquette University Law School Survey. 73% of Republicans nationally view Trump favorably. That's a pretty good number. Is it, you know, the almost 90% that at one time did? No, but he hasn't been president uh, for a year. 63% of Republicans in that poll, 51% of GOP-leaning independents, say they would like to see Trump run again in 2024. Um, that's pretty good, but it's not so dominant. And the director of the poll um, the, by the way, these numbers I'm citing here are from Mar Marquette. Um, says, this is an interesting gap between 73% liking him, but only about 60% saying they would like him to run again, says Charles Franklin. That leaves him as the odds-on favorite in the primary today. This is absolutely no disputing that. But you can see a gap in the continued affection for Trump in the party, but the opportunity to think about future candidates rather than past candidates. And look, it all depends on what Trump's standing is, what his health is, who he's running against, and indeed, whether a name-brand Republican, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, somebody else, actually decides to run against him if, in fact, the former president runs. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Number four, I did this on the show, and, you know, usually I don't get into members of Congress criticizing Fox News because, you know, Fox News is a perfectly fair target. Free country, they can say what they want. Um, I get it, you know, particularly on the Democratic side, 
Although some Democrats do come on Fox News and some liberals come on Fox News, and including on my show. Including Harold Ford, former Democratic congressman who's a Fox News contributor, regular guest for me, is now a regular on The Five. Anyway, I digress. This has to do with Congresswoman Cori Bush, Missouri Democrat. And there was a segment on Fox last week, um, the anchor of that particular part of the daytime show was my colleague Griff Jenkins. And he was interviewing a sergeant from the New York Police Department, Joseph Imperatrice, Imperatrice, excuse me. And they were discussing, you know, the Democrats stand on guns. Uh, Congresswoman Bush is a big supporter of um, Black Lives Matter. I think she's also expressed some support for defunding the police. So Griff leads into this. He's interviewing this police sergeant, and he says that Corey Bush's car got shot up. It was full of bullet holes. She wasn't in it. Nobody was in it. Fortunately, says Griff, nobody was harmed. And he goes on to say, would this make um, some lawmakers perhaps sing a different tune when it comes to these issues? And the sergeant says, and this was just, I, I sat up straight in my chair, way over the line. The harsh truth is we need these lawmakers to be victims. He says, I'm not praying that any of these people get hurt or harmed, but so the guest from the police department, he has no affiliation with Fox News. He's just a guest. He's a cop who they got to come on the show, and he has views. Says, we need these lawmakers to be victims. So what does Griff do when the sergeant says this? He jumps right in. He doesn't waste a second. He says, Joe, of course, we would never wish any harm whatsoever on any American, let alone a politician we disagreed with. Did the, exactly the right thing. You've got to be able to think fast. Somebody says something, you want to react. We are not embracing that in any way, shape, or form. So now the ball is in Cori Bush's court. She goes on the Twitter and she says, well, here is Fox News advocating for me to face violence. And look what she did there. If she wanted to go after this police sergeant, that's fine. She says Fox News, if this is, if this is the Fox News policy, because some guest came on Fox and said this, despite the fact that the anchor completely disassociated himself and said we would never wish any harm. He said the opposite of what the tweet says. But, you know, Fox News is this great target. And all the people who didn't see the segment are like, yeah, Cory Bush, that's outrageous. How dare those people at Fox? She says, Fox News is advocating for me to face violence. This is just false. It's just a distortion of reality. It's intellectually dishonest. Uh, I understand, you know, maybe the congresswoman is feeling emotional, having had her car shot at. It's a terrible thing. I don't wish it on anybody, even though the fact that nobody was hurt. It's, an, it's you know, it gives you an awful feeling. But that's what Griff Jenkins said. We would never wish any harm on anybody, even politicians we disagree with. All right, story number five. Uh, the reason I like this New York Times story, in addition to the fact that it's eye-catching and well-reported, is that it takes on the Democrats. And every once in a while, you know, you know, it's certainly the standard view among many media conservatives that New York Times, Washington Post, uh, they're all just left-leaning, they're all just propagandists for the Democratic Party. But if that's true, the paper wouldn't run a story like this. It's a total, you know, it's an investigation, it's an enterprise story, it's not reacting to some event. Here's how it starts. And it's about hypocrisy, which, as you all know, is my least favorite thing on the planet. For much of the last decade, Democrats complained with a mix of indignation, frustration, and envy that Republicans and their allies 
we're spending hundreds of millions of difficult-to-trace dollars to influence politics. This is so-called dark money. And it's true, the Democrats used to go on and on and on. The Republicans did do this. It was legal, but, you know, you couldn't really follow where the money was coming from. Dark money, this is the Times story, became a dirty word. And the left warned of the threat of corruption posed by corporations and billionaires spending unlimited sums through loosely regulated nonprofits that didn't disclose the identity of the donor. So they were able to be secret, pour money into a race or to a, a political, um, political action committee. Well, not an action committee, but there were other ways to do it. Nobody could find out. Then came the 2020 election. And guess what? The Democratic Party got into the dark money business. Despite all that previous rhetoric, it's like, hey, maybe we ought to try some of this stuff. They, the party embraced dark money with fresh zeal, pulling even with and by some measures surpassing Republicans in 2020 spending, according to this analysis that the Times did. The analysis shows that 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with the Democratic Party spent more than $1.5 billion in 2020 compared to about $900 million spent by a comparable sample of 15 of the most Republican-aligned groups. And so the Times goes on to say, because you have to have a cosmic point, that these mega-donors using the shield of anonymity are really reshaping American politics because this is an S-load of money. Some good government activists are worried about this, but look at the hypocrisy. The Democrats are like, this is terrible. What the Republicans are doing is terrible. This should not be allowed. We have to reform this. This is completely out of control. Well, uh, you know what? We'd really like to win in 2020, and we do have a lot of people who are going to kick in a lot of money uh, against Trump. How about that? So just as an example, the Times points to one cryptically named, I love that, group. Uh, that kind of funnels money for the left. It's called the 1630 Fund. Received mystery donations as large as $50 million, disseminated grants to more than 200 groups while spending a total of, this is serious cash, folks, $410 million during that campaign year. More than the DNC itself. So this one group, and this is not the only group, this one dark money group, pouring more money into the 2020 elections than the Democratic National Committee. I mean, I'm slapping my forehead. I don't know if you can hear that. And again, what a change in the way in which what the games the Democrats are willing to play. Just incredible. And, you know, there are people saying, well, you know, the, the Republicans are doing it. We had to be able to compete. I'm sorry. You don't get to spend years saying this is awful. It's, it's corruption. It's, it has to be reformed. It's eroding our democracy. And then do the same thing yourself, even if it's legal, uh, sometimes as Mike Kinsley, a great columnist, once observed, the thing that's the biggest scandal in Washington is what's legal, not what's illegal. And kudos to the New York Times for pointing out that the Democrats are now playing this game, apparently playing it even better than Republicans, and sheer hypocrisy. Uh, I point out hypocrisy wherever I find it. Hypocritic Republicans, like are they weren't Republicans the party of law and order? And now Donald Trump's talking about giving pardons to people who broke the law on January 6th, that shameful episode of the Capitol. I mean, he didn't say he was going to do it. Well, we'll look into it. We'll make sure they're treated fairly. That's kind of a code word. What happened to the law and order Republicans? Well, when it's Trump, a lot of people just turn silent or, you know, give credit. Lindsey Graham, he said inappropriate and um, shouldn't have been said. So with that, 
I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, our Media Buzz segments are online today, Twitter, Facebook, show page. If you'd like to check it out, we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.